Hi everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Piano Rhapsody Podcast, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow the progression of an amateur piano player starting at Beethoven's Fur Elise and graduating to Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. We don't know how long it's going to take, but every week we take a look at one of the pieces that I encounter as we follow along this blue brick road. Uh, doesn't quite have the same ring to it. We talk about the history, the composer, the music, and we try to frame the piece in appropriate context. And the idea is we all walk away appreciating music a little bit more, and with a little more knowledge that we can all use to tackle more complex pieces in the future. This is episode 6.2, the second episode in a series spotlighting one of the titans of the classical period, Ludwig van Beethoven and his opus number 49, which includes sonatas 19 and 20, the two easiest piano sonatas that he ever wrote. We went slightly out of order last week and started with the first movement of sonata number 20, which is a stately movement set in sonata form. Today, we're going to discuss the second and final movement of sonata number 20. But before we jump into that, you may have noticed if you follow me on Twitter, that I retweeted a video of quite possibly the very first recorded performance of Sonata Number no. 20. It's a recording by an Australian pianist named William Murdoch back in the year 1923. The audio quality is expectedly pretty grainy, but it's interesting to hear a professional recording of this work, especially one almost a century old. I find myself saying this quite a bit on this podcast, but The times we live in are just incredible. I acknowledge that the good comes with a host of problems and challenges, but the fact that we can type some words into a computer, you know, not even a computer, a phone that we carry in our pocket, and instantly bring up a recording from 1923 of a Beethoven sonata written in 1795? And time is just becoming more and more relative. Sometimes I need to just take a step back and appreciate the things I usually take for granted. And speaking of modern technology, I've recently discovered an app called Primephonic, which is an archive of over 2 million classical music recordings that they have arranged in a very user-friendly app, which, similar to Spotify, will learn what you like and create recommended playlists for you. It's also extremely friendly to users brand new to classical music. There's a free 10-week course you can enroll in called Ludwig, which is perfect timing for this podcast, that will walk you through all of the musical eras, including medieval and renaissance, which is something we don't really discuss on this podcast. The major difference with Ludwig as opposed to this podcast is they not only discuss piano music, but spend a lot of time talking about orchestral, chamber, and choral music. So if you're looking to branch out from the piano and expand your knowledge of classical music, I highly recommend giving Primephonic a shot. The standard free trial is two weeks on the website, but if you click on the link that I provide in the episode description, you'll get a two-month free trial, and you'll also help support me in the upkeep to keep this podcast running. Kill two birds with one stone, why not? And just to clarify, this is not a paid advertisement from Primephonic. It's honestly just a service that I believe in, 
and that I personally use. I have no doubt that if something like this existed when I was younger and had all the time in the world to play piano, I'd probably already be playing Rhapsody in Blue. <laughs> so yeah, if it sounds like something you'd be interested in, or you want to try out the two-month free trial, please check out the link in the episode description. Alright, let's get back to Beethoven's Sonata Number 20. So in the last episode, we talked about how Opus 49 was written around the year 1795, which would place sonatas number 19 and 20 in Beethoven's early period. But they were not published until the year 1805, which gave them an opus number that falls in the middle period of Beethoven's compositional career. So what's with the 10-year delay? Well, the answer to that question shed some light into the family dynamics of the Beethoven family. The fact that Opus 49 even saw the light of day is thanks to Beethoven's younger brother Casper, who served as his older brother's business manager. Casper was the one in charge of brokering publishing deals, for which he was notorious for being pretty inept, often intentionally trying to create bidding wars between publishing companies, which, to put it mildly, caused Beethoven a lot of problems. Beethoven had already dismissed Sonatas 19 and 20 to the never-for-publication pile, likely because they were just slight works that he relegated to his friends and students, and he didn't believe that they were of high enough caliber to bear the mark of an opus number. But Casper took these manuscripts and had them published in 1805 without his older brother's permission. And Beethoven was not too happy with his little brother after that. So why would Casper want to risk incurring the wrath of his older brother? Well, it probably had something to do with an extremely popular piece of Beethoven's that was published in 1802. Next to the Moonlight Sonata, which, by the way, that's a work on my wish list to cover on this podcast one day. This piece was the second most popular work during Beethoven's lifetime. It's not one of his symphonies, and no, it's not another one of his piano sonatas. It's actually opus number 20, a piece of chamber music titled Septet in E-flat major. Now, Beethoven was known for recycling his themes from time to time, but let's have a listen to the start of the second movement of sonata number 20, written around year 1795. Now let's compare that to the third movement of the septet in E-flat major, written in the year 1800. Sorry about the audio quality, but as you can see, a direct copy. Because the septet was so popular, Casper saw this as an opportunity for an easy cash grab, since the melody was already well-known and well-liked. His older brother, however, was likely mortified knowing that the same exact theme would bear the official publication marks of two separate opus numbers, 
let alone the fact that he probably wasn't even very proud of this pair of sonatas to begin with. Casper did the world a favor, though, because these pieces would have likely been lost to history otherwise. And today, they are commonly found in student collections and widely taught as an entry point to Beethoven's piano sonatas. So thanks for taking one for the team, Casper. I'm sure that was an uncomfortable day in the Beethoven household, to say the least. So while the first movement of Sonata No. 20 was in sonata form, the second movement is a dance in rondo form. The movement is marked Tempo di Minuetto, or in the time of a minuet. A minuet is a couple's dance of French origin that dates back to the early 17th century. They have elegant melodies written in 3-4 time, meaning that it has three beats per measure. The word minuet is likely derived from the French word menu, meaning small, which might refer to the very small steps which make up the dance. Minuets were one of the dances that gained popularity during the Baroque period, and were introduced in dance suites by Bach and Handel. Minuets remained popular during the classical period as well, finding themselves common as the third movement of classical symphonies. And, as we're about to hear, they also find themselves written into piano sonatas as well. So as we noted, the second movement of Beethoven's Sonata No. 20 is a minuet written in rondo form. Rondo form is something we've encountered a couple times on this podcast, actually on the very first episode with another one of Beethoven's pieces, for Elise. In case there are some new listeners out there, Rondo form is A-B-A-C-A. There's a main theme that we'll hear three times throughout the movement, with two different sections sandwiched within. It's kind of the musical equivalent of a club sandwich, if the A section were bread. The movement opens with the A section, which is the same section we briefly heard before. It pretty much checks all the boxes we discussed previously about what makes a minuet a minuet. An elegant dance in 3-4 time. This movement has a little more character and charm than the first movement of the sonata, and feels less boxy. This also makes it a little more difficult to distinguish between the transitions of the piece, but we're going to run through those right now. After theme A is complete, you'll know when we hit the B section, when you hear rapid ascending G major scales in the left hand. This section soon modulates to the dominant key, or the fifth tone in the scale. So starting at G major, that would take us to G, A, B, C, D major. And you'll hear the D major scales in the right hand. From here, section B keeps us rolling down the circle of fifths to the dominant key of the dominant. So up another fifth from D major will take us to D, E, F, G, A major. (music) 
Then we go right down the path we came up on, back down to D major, and then right back to G major, where theme A comes back a second time. The theme replays unaltered from its original occurrence, and once it concludes, part C begins. Part C opens with a clear-cut key change to C major, which is fitting, right? C is the fourth tone of the G major scale. So we've talked many times about how the fifth tone is labeled the dominant, so it would make sense that we call the fourth tone the subdominant. I might be forgetting something, but I don't think we've encountered a transition to the subdominant before. So let's listen to this transition one more time from G major to C major. Now, this transition to the subdominant is very handy because check out what happens when you follow the circle of fifths from here. So if we start at C major, let's move up D, E, F, and hey, looky here. We're back home at G major. And once we arrive back here, we enter the third and final iteration of the A theme, completing the club sandwich. So let's hear it one more time. And once the theme plays out for its final time, the movement closes with a coda, which is Italian for tail. So this tail end of the movement revisit some of the motifs that we've heard throughout the piece, like the ascending scales, and provides us some nice closure with a return to the tonic home chord of G major, sealing both the second movement and the sonata at once. A-B-A-C-A, the rondo form. Keep that in mind as we listen to this movement, and I'll provide some guided listening prompts. Here is Beethoven's Opus 49, number 2, Sonata number 20 in G major, movement 2. A. B. A. B. 
सी That completes sonata number 20. Two movements, the first in sonata form, the second in minuet in rondo form. It's the logical first step to playing Beethoven's sonatas, so we can all thank Casper for that. Next week, we'll take a step backwards and look at the first sonata from Opus 49, number 19 in G minor, which shares a similar form but is a little more technically demanding. You could find the standalone recording for this sonata movement without my vocal instructions right in the podcast feed. If you'd like to reach out to me, you could find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody or email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. Or you could head over to the Piano Rhapsody SoundCloud page where you'll find the recordings to all of the pieces discussed in this podcast and more. If you're interested in trying out the Prime Phonics service, please check out the link in the episode description. Not only will you get two months free, you'll also be helping support this show. Speaking of, thanks for listening. Hope you're enjoying our stop in the classical era. Next week, we'll continue on with a brand new sonata. Talk to you then.